As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Torella. And I'm your better, prettier, younger host, Tori. We're sisters who are obsessed with true crime and love gal palin with you about cases. You can expect the occasional curse word, lots of friends quotes, and all the 90s nostalgia. To get in on the conversation, check us out at KillerQueensPodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at KillerQueensPodcast. And we're on YouTube at Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. Okay, y'all, grab your Capri Suns or your Surge, and let's talk about some true crime. So we're doing Columbine. Sorry. So, and if you've never listened to us or watched us before, this is a light true crime podcast, but we try to lighten things up when we can. This one's going to be tough, but we're still going to just, I don't know if there's any way to talk about this case and not feel like you just need to take a shower after, but... I guess our goal would be to make you just feel like maybe you want to spritz a perfume instead. Maybe not the whole shower is what you need. Maybe like an Axe body spray moment. Yeah. Curve. Curve is great. Clinique happy. God, I love Curve. (laughs) It's sexy. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) All right. So, and the reason we're doing this case right now is because April the 20th of this year, 2020, is the 21st anniversary of the tragedy. So it's a little bit timely. Uh, Thank you to Sloan, as always, for researching this case. Sloan, this was her Everest. Like, this is the longest script we've ever gotten or like the longest research we've ever gotten. It, It is a it's a big case. There's a lot to go into there, but she's read the book on it several times um, so it was definitely a case that she was really super interested in, and we definitely appreciate her doing all the hard work on this one. Oh, yeah. Without further ado, here it is. Let's get into it. Yeah, let's launch right into it. April the 20th, 1999, the end of the school year, February-ish to May-ish, had become known for being very deadly for schools. In February of 96, a student in Bethel, Alaska, went on a rampage. In October, there was a shooting in Pearl, Mississippi. December was West Paducah, Kentucky, in Stamps, Arkansas. And in 1998, there were five attacks. All of these had been white teenage boys in some small town. I don't remember any of these. Like, everybody remembers Columbine. And I think that Columbine is the 
starting point of like memory of school shootings for a lot of people. We were young. I was in what ninth grade when this happened, but still it's like that's the moment that everybody says school shootings are a thing and they they had obviously happened before that. It's just this one kind of put them on the map, you know? People started to take notice and it's just I I just don't remember hearing about any before this point. I don't either. And you, I mean, of course we're older now, but you hear about them so much now, unfortunately, it's so scary. Yeah, it's really scary. It became known as shooting season, so that end part of the school year, and that would continue for years. The Virginia Tech shooting occurred on April 16th of 2007. April 19th was a specifically horrible day in American history, both the end of the Waco standoff in 93 and Oklahoma City bombing in 95 happened on April 19th. Then, on April 20th, 1999, Dylan Klebold left his house by 5.15 to 5.30 in the morning to meet his friend Eric Harris. His parents are still upstairs and assume that he was just off to his first class. The high school seniors had skipped the bowling class they typically attended on Tuesdays at 6 a.m. and instead went in went about setting things into motion for the plan they'd worked on for at least a year. Okay, because I was like, who? Why would he be gone that early? <laughs> like, I can't believe bowling class or bowling club takes place at 6 a.m. That's dedication to bowling. For a high school senior? Like, I wasn't going anywhere at 6 in the morning. Hell no, I wasn't even waking up at 6 a.m. Hell no. The pair wrote out their schedule for the day in Eric's school planner. Then they each drove their own cars to the grocery store. The boys bought the last six propane tanks they needed and returned to Eric's house at 7 a.m. From there, Dylan and Eric separated to perform their individual tasks. Dylan's task was to get the gasoline and Eric's was to fill the propane tanks. Dylan and Eric gathered the supplies they had hoarded in Eric's closet. They had a schedule to keep. I I feel like after learning more about this case, I'm going to be all up in my kid's shit all the time. (sighs) What are you writing down? What do you have in your drawers? What's under your mattress? (laughs) Like, probably the worst thing I'm going to find is like weed or porn. But, you know, what if it's a bomb? I don't know. We don't know. No, we can't know. Uh, Unless you dig in there and yeah. Exactly. Because yeah, how else do you know? 30 minutes for assembling the big bombs and setting up their cars and an hour for gearing up practice and quote unquote chill. They ate a healthy breakfast that consisted, at least for Dylan, of potato skins. Breakfast of champions. Potato skins and chill. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Potato skins and chill. At some point during the morning, Eric and Dylan used the 8mm camcorder they had checked out from school to record the final installment in what would become known as the basement tapes, and this was their goodbye. Dylan addressed his mom specifically and told her he had to go. He apologized to his parents for any crap this might instigate. That's the understatement of the century. But that he was just unhappy and it was time to go. Eric took over and said his goodbyes as well. He also apologized but said that he can't help it. They agreed that this was something they had to do. They went over schedule in their chill time when they finally left their house at 11 a.m. Where were Eric's parents? Maybe they were already at work. I guess. Yeah, maybe they had to leave before Eric would have had to leave. Yeah, because it's like, the fuck are you doing Well, at that point, that was 
pretty late, yeah. Yeah, 11. Dylan had outfitted himself in cargo pants and a black t-shirt that said Wrath in red letters, as well as black combat boots. He topped off his outfit with his trademark backwards baseball cap with the Red Sox logo. Eric also wore black combat boots, but but his t-shirt said Natural Selection. I hate that. The boys had a pair of fingerless gloves that they made fingerless themselves by cutting the fingers off, and Dylan wore the the left glove and Eric wore the right. Two pipe bombs were left behind at Eric's house, and six were left at Dylan's. They set the scene knowing they wouldn't return. They put a micro cassette, like the little one, like in a, a voicemail recording thing. Like an answering machine. Yes, answering machine. Wow, I already forgot. <laughs> never forget. Yikes. Hashtag never forget. Answering machines. And you <laughs> forgot. I forgot it. Sorry. Sorry, girl. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the one, because I was trying to explain it to anybody who might not know what it is, and I f- forgot it, so ruined. I ruined it. <laughs> um, it's teeny, though. It's about yay big. It's teeny. I loved those things. They're so cute. Yeah. And the answering machine was, like, that big. So, like, why did it have to be that big for the micro cassette? Is like, that big. But 90s were wild, man. <laughs> Exactly. He left the tape on the counter, and he had recorded his final thoughts the night before, so I guess he wanted his parents to find it. On the cassette, he said, people will die because of me. It will be a day that will be remembered forever. Like, fuck you. And he's proud of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's proud of that. He also left the set of basement tapes. They drove their cars to a nearby park where they planned to drop off a decoy bomb that would, in theory, deter police from coming to the high school where the real chaos would be. The timers on the decoys were set for 11.14 a.m. It's really scary how much thought they put into it, too. Had any of the bombs worked the way they were supposed to? I mean, it was already absolutely tragic, but... Think of the magnitude, or think of what it could have been. Yeah, the amplified magnitude. It just, yeah, that's so scary. They drove to the high school where their friends had noticed their absence from classes. They had a plan to place two big bombs in the cafeteria during the beginning of a lunch. So they had, I think every school has, if you're big enough, has separate lunch periods. So a lunch started at 11, 10 a.m. after fourth period. They had done their homework. You know what? When I was watching the, a documentary about this, and I was like, 11, 10 a.m., that is so early to have lunch. And guess what time I had lunch today? 10.45. So who am I to judge? Oh, yeah, I can't. I can hardly make it to 11.30 now. So, but I think, I mean, at <laughs> school, I think, yeah, the lunches are really super. Well, because you got to fit three in, so you got to start one. Or we did. We had three, right? Yeah, we had three lunches. Yeah. Second lunch was like always the place to be. 100%. Yeah. And then third lunch, because we sometimes would have, uh, we had what they called the bookstore and they would have like, Mondays would be Domino's Pizza Day and Fridays would be what, Barbecue Day or whatever. And if you had third lunch, there was a good chance that it was sold out by the time you'd get there, depending on what lunch or what they were serving. Oh, yeah. And a lot of people would come into the bookstore because I worked in the bookstore and a lot of people would come into the bookstore that I knew damn well had third lunch and they would just come in and go ahead and like buy their cheese sticks and then save them until lunch so that they weren't out. And I was like, pizza and cheese sticks are good though. Oh my God, they're so good. I mean, 
And that marinara Can't sauce? Can't blame them. There's something about it. I know. I know. It's like heaven on earth. I know. I know. They had done their homework and knew that they had seven minutes to put the bombs in place and then get out back to their cars. But because they chilled too long, Eric didn't pull into the junior parking lot at school until 11, 10 a.m. Dylan wasn't far behind him, parking in his regular spot in the senior parking lot about 100 yards away. They had chosen these spots strategically for vantage points. Their schedule had provided them about seven minutes to carry the duffel bags with the big bombs into the cafeteria, stash them, get back to their cars, and load themselves up with weapons and ammunition. They should have been back to their cars by 11-12. This is a tight timeline. Like, you're giving yourself well, one to if, two minutes. But if it was such a tight timeline, why the fuck did they not stick to the eight-minute chill time that they allowed themselves? Like, Tori, if you're getting, like, your good chill on, you're not going to stop in the middle. The chill has to end on its own. What are they supposed to do? They're just dumb teenage boys. Like, there's some things that say, wow, you really planned this out. And there's some things that are like, but you're still teenage boys. Well, it just makes it so much sadder when it's so obvious like that. It's like, wow, you were only like 16 years old or 17 years old or however old, you know? Yeah, exactly. It, It is really sad. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. According to the surveillance tape, they were still not in the commons of the cafeteria at 11.14. So they're supposed to be just already back to their cars by 11.12. So they're like pretty behind schedule. Just after 11.14, the boys managed to stash the bombs and walk back out without any of the over 500 people noticing them. When I watched uh, one of the, there's like a documentary, there's several documentaries on it. Um, I watched one of them and they talked to a guy named Brooks Brown, who he's going to, we'll talk about him a lot in the next episode because he's a big part of like the history. He was friends with Dylan. But Brooks said that the way that he described them was that they were the lowest of the low as far as like he was like, they weren't just the least popular guys of the senior class. They were the least popular guys of the whole school. People didn't pay attention to them. People didn't like them. The 
The journalist who wrote a book on this case disagrees with that, but it does seem that at the very least they were people that they walk in, there's that many people there, and then they walk back out. They've already missed, apparently they missed a test, or at least one of them did that morning. Nobody says anything to them. So there's definitely... They're just like overlooked completely. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like that. We've made jokes before like, oh, I got sat on again today because sometimes we're, we feel a little invisible, but this sounds like a whole different story, you know? Right. Yeah, exactly. The surveillance cameras had actually been installed only four months before the attack. Principal Frank DeAngelis wanted the students to make sure that the shared space was left clean when they left it. He was upset by the entitlement and sloppiness, according to the book by Dave Cullen, so he had the four cameras installed. Wow, what a... I mean, just have no idea what those cameras are going to catch, and he's thinking it's going to catch somebody leaving something behind. Right, like had no idea that it was going to be a mass shooting and not just like somebody littering. Right. Every day a custodian came in at about 11.05 to rewind the previous tape and put in a new one. This Tuesday, he was running behind and didn't get the new tape queued up until about 11.22, but by then the bombs were already in place. Eric and Dylan had set the bomb timers for about 11.17 a.m. This was the time that Eric had determined would provide maximum human density. He had taken meticulous notes about the minutes that the doors opened, the numbers of people in the room at a given time, and even what time the lunch ladies brought out the food. He determined that at 11.17, there were about 500 people in the cafeteria. So he just wanted as many people to be hit with these bombs as humanly possible. He didn't want to hit it. He didn't want it to go off when, like, only some of the people would have been in there. He wanted everybody the height of that lunch period. That's fucked up. So fucked up. That's so... To have that... The capability of thinking that way is so scary. Yeah, and imagine... Like, and how why? Much, yeah, and how much work he put into that. Like, imagine if he'd put that much work into anything else, almost. Any other thing. He could have done yeah. amazing things for humanity. And guess what? You can be remembered by doing good things. It doesn't have to be a horrible thing to get remembered. Well, yeah, and I feel like it's the the whole, like, being infamous. Like, that's not always... There's... Good publicity, bad publicity. Some people, they don't care. It's just as long as they are known. And I'm sure that that plays into how they were overlooked for everything because they just wanted somebody to notice them. And I don't know. There's a lot of layers. I'm sure we'll get into that later. But yeah. After dropping off the bombs and getting back to their cars, the boys loaded themselves with their weapons and ammunition. They covered it all with their black trench coats to cover up their arsenal and to really just look super rad. Well, a sweet duster is going to accomplish that. You're going to want that sweet duster. The boys had backpacks full of pipe bombs and crickets, which were little bombs made from carbon dioxide cartridges and gunpowder. You should never be able to name something so terrible, something so adorable. A cricket? You think crickets is a cute? I think it's cute. They're disgusting. Okay, first of all, have you ever seen Mulan? Second of all, do you remember those, well, I guess they weren't adorable. Yeah, crickets, I can't stand. I mean, remember, there was a time that there was a cricket loose in the house, and I wouldn't, like, I made you come. You called me at work. Yeah, because I don't like them. 
Tori, if you let a cricket out of your sight, you don't know where the fuck that cricket went to, and then it will jump on you when you're not looking. It's just so funny to me. I get home, and she covered it with a bowl, I think, and left it there, and I just picked, I don't pick mini bugs up by hand, but I just picked it up and threw it outside. I'm like, it, what, it's, it's a cricket. It's a little black cricket. Those are the scariest ones. I don't like grasshoppers <laughs> either. You are such a little, you're a weenie baby. You belong at Weenie Hut Juniors. Yeah, it's definitely not a secret why my four-year-old is so terrified of bugs. He can hardly handle himself right now. My husband's like, that's your fault. I'm like, well, yeah, it is. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so at 11.18 a.m., nothing happened. They waited because their bombs had used old school alarm clocks with the metal bells on top. So the alarm was set by turning a third hand. It wasn't precise. At 11.19, still nothing. Somehow, Eric and Dylan communicated with each other enough to come together to discuss the next steps. Around this time, they're seen on surveillance at the west exit to the school. They open their duffel bags at the top of the stairs, and Judgment Day began. They started by tossing pipe bombs. Then, they took aim at students who were outside for lunch or out there to smoke. Rachel Scott and Richard Castaldo were the first students to get shot. Rachel was hit in the chest and the head. She died instantly. Her friend Richard was hit in the arm, and he played dead so he wouldn't get shot again. Danny Rohrbaugh, Lance Kirkland, and Sean Graves were coming back from the smokers' area when they saw the beginning of the chaos. Unfortunately, the boys assumed they were paintball guns, and this was some kind of a senior prank. Because, yeah, what would you... (laughs) Of course you don't think these people are going to kill you. They wanted to get closer, so they rushed in. Eric shot. He hit Danny in the knee, and it went straight through. Danny stumbled a little, and Eric shot again. The second bullet went straight through his chest and damaged his heart. He died instantly. Eric got off another shot to Danny's abdomen that lacerated his liver and stomach and then lodged inside. Lance tried to catch Danny, but he was shot too. He got hit in the chest, leg, knee, and foot, so he wasn't able to catch Danny. Danny's face hit the concrete, and Lance went down as well. Lance blacked out. Sean realized he was hit too. He ran back to the door, but his legs gave out. He couldn't feel them anymore. When Lance regained consciousness, although the person, or I'm sorry, he thought the person standing over him could help him, Eric was cold and shot him in the face. Lance blacked out again, but he was still breathing. Oh my gosh. This is insane. And these are kids at school. Like, I, of course, sobbed through pretty much the whole thing. Like, when I watched that, just thinking about you send your child off for school. You think they're going to come home this afternoon. I'll have to get on his ass about homework or whatever. You know, just like normal day in, day out kind of stuff. This is horrifying to think of what these these kids went through. And teachers, everybody, mm-hmm. I mean, everybody. Someone who saw what was going on tried to pull Sean out of the way, but was stopped by an adult who told him it wasn't safe to move someone that badly injured. The person who had attempted to help Sean left him propped in the doorway. The door hit him. <gasps> the door hit him, and people would step over him and on him to get out. I just... He's laying there like this is a person. A janitor came by and told Sean he would come and stay with him, but first he was going to get other kids out. The janitor told Sean to play dead, and so he did. Dylan stepped over him on the way into the building. Kids in the lunchroom bolted or hit under tables. Teacher and coach Dave Sanders heard the commotion while he was in the teacher's lounge. Dave had been a teacher at Columbine for years and had dedicated his life to the students and athletes. 
He even had a marriage end over his absence and workaholic tendencies. Dave remarried, and at 47 years old, he recently decided he was actually going to start making some changes. He got brand new wire-rimmed glasses, a step up from the huge plastic frames of the past. He was drinking Diet Coke and rum instead of regular Coke and rum for his bedtime drink, and most significantly, he had decided he was going to take more time off for his family and not run camps in the summer like he had before. Dave wanted to spend more time with his wife, daughters, and grandchildren. But on this day, he did what he always did, and he put his students first. Dave came out to see what was going on, and when he realized there was a danger, he instructed the kids to get down. He quickly changed his mind and then told them to all run. Coach Sanders led almost 500 people through the commons and up the stairs. Once he was at the top, he directed traffic and stayed behind until every kid had gone. As they were on their way up the stairs, Dylan entered the commons. He waved his rifle in an arc, but he didn't take any shots. That's that's a thing, too. Like when I so I watched a lecture that Dave Cullen, the guy who wrote the book, gave to a college class or something. But. He talked about how, like, the first question that people always ask about this case is, why did they do it? And he's like, the appropriate question is, why did Eric do it? And why did Dylan do it? Because they were two separate people with two separate motivations and lumping them together is just incorrect because they didn't have the same motivations. They didn't have the same excitement necessarily either. Dylan faked a lot of what he did. Like, he didn't take nearly as many shots as Eric did. He would wave his gun around, but he wouldn't actually shoot nearly as often. Like, he definitely took part in it. There's no denying that. But he definitely seemed, he definitely seemed like... Well, it seems like he just wanted, like, he just wanted to impress Eric and, yeah, do whatever Eric said, kind of. Yeah. Like, he was very much a sheep in this. Yeah, I think so. And there were some issues that he had going on that I think Eric took advantage of. Um, and we'll get into it in the next episode, too, but... Eric is definitely a psychopath. Dylan was not. So they have two very different personality types, too. But it's just worth noting, like, he would, you know, he would kind of walk into an area and he would act like he was going to do something and maybe just not ever do it. But, you know, for Eric, it was the, what's that saying? The greatest, the most showman. (laughs) Right. The most dangerous game or whatever. Isn't that what they call hunting uh, people? It's like it was a game. It was definitely a game for him. But um, and Dave Cullen said that to Eric, you know, when you see a kid who like sees a line of ants and they take the magnifying glass and like try to burn all of them or step on all of them just to be mean, like that's how Eric viewed humanity. It, it, I feel like Eric was like Sid from Toy Story. Yes. Wow. Yeah, totally. Yeah, he just didn't he didn't view people as people. It was like meant no, it made no difference to him if somebody were to lose a life. What does that matter, you know? And like I mean, I still I don't like ants like <laughs> but I still don't want to kill them unnecessarily. <laughs> like I still get upset like sometimes, you know, cuz this is the season, I guess, and there are ants everywhere. And I'll just like me just smash one and then i'm like i'm so sorry i'm so sorry oh my gosh yeah, it's like like i hope your mom is okay 
you're like, she's going to be sad when you don't I mean, come it, back. It takes a village, you know? It does. I remember one time there was, I think it was a spider. It was like one of those teeny, teeny little, like, so little spiders. But it was in the Ew. kitchen sink. And I was like, oh, God. And so I turned the water on really quick because I didn't want it to, like, get near me. And so it went down the drain. And I felt horrible. Andrew got home and I was like, I drowned that spider. Like, I drowned it. And he's it. like, great. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, it's a horrible. That's a horrific thing to do. And he was like, it's a spider. And I was like, but I drowned him. He was like, well, would you rather he lived? And I was like, no, but I drowned him. Like, it felt oh. really bad. But Eric, you know, that could have been a, a person. He didn't give a shit. So the kids and staff. So we were at Dylan going up the stairs, waving his rifle around. The kids and the staff that were still stuck on the stairs could have very easily been added to the body count, but Dylan left, stepped over Sean again on his way out. He didn't shoot anybody. Meanwhile, Eric takes a shot at another student, Anne-Marie Hockhalter, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, was hit with a 9mm round, but she kept running. Eric shot again. Anne-Marie went down. A friend saw Anne-Marie go down and pulled her out of sight and then took off running, which is... A nice thing to do. It's really crazy that these kids are jumping in and doing stuff that you would see done on a battlefield, you know, like going and grabbing somebody out of that open area or line of fire just to at least protect them from getting shot again. It's like those are good people. Well, yeah. Protecting is second nature to them. Yeah. Doing that in a panicky, tragic, uh, I don't even know what you could call the situation because I can't say how I would react. I mean, I would be terrified. I definitely would need to change my diaper. You know what I mean? But it's like, oh, for sure. I think this shows you a horrible side of humanity and situations like this should never happen. And at the same time, you see all these people putting their lives on the line to help other people. And it shows you that people are good too. Like there's a lot of evil in this world, but there is still a lot of good in this world. And I think it's mm-hmm. it's very much a, a horrible way to have to see that. But um, it does give you hope that there are, you know, good people out there that would jump in and grab you out of the way just to make sure that, you know, to try to help you survive something. At 11.23 a.m., four minutes in, that we're only four minutes in, the custodian radioed the community resource officer, Deputy Neil Gardner, who was the security at the school. The custodian had started the new surveillance tape and noticed kids were up by the windows. At the same time, the first 911 call comes through about a girl injured in the parking lot, and that person said, I think she's paralyzed. Deputy Gardner comes around the same time, still 11.23 a.m., the dispatcher comes over to the radio saying female down. When Dylan left the cafeteria, Dave Sanders kept the kids moving out into the upstairs hallway near where the part-time teacher Patty Nelson was performing her hall monitor duties. I'm sorry, Patty Nielsen. Nielsen heard loud noises and assumed that the pop she heard were a loud and inappropriate prop for a video. She went in search of the students causing the disruption. Hot on her heels was a junior named Brian wanting to see the altercation. When Nielsen and Brian got to the exit, Eric caught sight of them and shot at the doors. Nielsen thought the gun he was holding was a BB gun until she saw the hole it made in the window. Can you imagine? Again, because you're not ever thinking, well, 
most people aren't ever thinking. My first thought is always danger, murderer. Like everything (laughs) I hear, I'm like, somebody has died or somebody's going to kill me. Like I'm terrified of everything. But like, you know, of course you're not going to be thinking that. And then you're going to walk right up to that person. It's just so scary. Well, if you're a teacher, yeah, I'm sure she was like, oh my gosh, these kids, come on. Yeah, she's like, you got to be fucking kidding me. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Um, So they see the hole that it made in the window. And they st- they turn around. They're going to get out of there. They were both hit by shrapnel. Brian went down, but was immediately back on his hands and knees trying to crawl to safety. They were able to squeeze through the interior exit door, and then they got up and took off running. So Nielsen ran to the nearest phone, which happened to be in the library. She entered the room and announced that there was a kid with a gun. However, teacher Rich Long had gotten there first, and most most of the adults were gone. Nielsen told the kids to get down sure that Eric was right behind her. It's terrifying, terrifying. Eric, though, at that moment, was caught up in an exchange with Deputy Gardner. Eric shot 10 rounds at Gardner, but missed every single shot. And Dylan... I thought he was supposed to be a good shot. That's what I thought. And Dylan stood by and did nothing. He just stood there. Gardner used his police car as protection, but after the 10 shots, Eric's rifle jammed and he struggled to clear it. Gardner got off four shots and Eric spun as if he'd been hit, but fired back and then went back inside the school. Gardner followed protocol and did not follow Eric and Dylan into the school. That is something that is such a huge issue in this case, too, is that the protocol, I guess, was like when there's an active shooter that you don't go in. And so, this what do you this, do well now you're supposed to go in but i guess then they thought if we go in it will cause more trouble or get more people possibly hurt so you were supposed to i don't know what you were supposed to do honestly maybe it's further down here but um this lasted a really long time and it he could have followed him in you know and been done with it mm-hmm. but During these early minutes of the attack, Frank DeAngelis, Mr. D, is what they referred to him as the principal, had been alerted to the incident. He was in an interview and was pulled out by his secretary. When he got to the hallway and saw the boys shooting, he also noticed a gym class full of girls happily coming out of the gym to play softball. Among these girls was Danny Rohrbaugh's stepsister. Mr. D saw the girls walking right into the danger. Eric fired and hit the trophy case behind Mr. D. He ran into the chaos, yelling at the girls to go back. When they got to the gym, the door had locked behind them. Mr. D, of course, had the key. He had all the keys, but he had all the keys on one keychain. And fortunately, he happened to pick the right one on the first try. That is also terrifying. Like, I only have like two keys on my key ring. And if I was like in that much danger and like, okay, everything is hinging on me opening this door with the right key, I would fumble that bitch and drop it. And shaking like that or something, but he, I mean, he had, like, probably, what, a thousand keys on a key ring? Like, you know, those big key well, rings? yeah, like, one of those janitor key rings. Yeah, and he got it on the first try, like, wow. Mr. D led the girls to the equipment storage closet. He told the girls not to open the door for anyone or anything, and then he locked it. Okay, so Sloan actually says this is part of our active shooter training that they do annually, so she's a teacher. Um... She said that we're told that we lock the door, hide, and don't open it for anyone, even if you recognize them, which is also like a scary thing to think because what they're saying is the shooter could be somebody that you know, and you just don't know that they're the shooter. 
So do not open the door for anybody if you recognize them or even if you recognize them. And then when the SWAT team comes through, they'll have a key or they'll bust in, but you'll see that there's like, you'll know that they're SWAT, but don't open it for anybody else because you don't know who you can trust. That's terrifying. Right. Ugh. Mr. D peeked outside and saw the Jeffco Sherrits. Jeffco is the nickname for Jefferson County where Columbine is located, but everybody just refers to it as Jeffco. Mr. D said he had to get the girls and ran back to get them. Once out, Mr. D told the sheriff he was going to go back in for more students, but the sheriff grabbed him. He wouldn't let him go back in. It was 11.24 a.m. and the attack had been going on for five minutes outside the school. During that five-minute span, Eric had gotten off 47 shots with his 9mm while Dylan had taken three shots with his Tech 9 and two with a shotgun. Eric and Dylan headed to the library. At 11.26, Eric reappeared in the doorway and Deputy Gardner and another officer shot. Eric hid behind the doorframe, stuck his gun through the shattered windows, and shot back. Gardner shot three more times before Eric disappeared again. Dave Sanders had heard the shots Eric fired at Nielsen and Brian and came running toward the danger. He passed the library right as Nielsen went in and saw the killers. Dave turned to run and get kids out of danger, and then he was hit. A bullet entered his back, ripped through his ribcage, and exited through his chest, opening his subclavian vein, a major vein, back to the heart. Oh, my God. The second bullet entered his neck and exited through his mouth. My God. The bullet lacerated his tongue and broke his teeth. It also hit his carotid arteries. He was bleeding a lot. Dave ran into lockers and fell to the floor. Rich Long said he was on the floor trying to get kids to safety, but Eric and Dylan were still shooting and throwing pipe bombs down the hall. Rich yelled at Dave that they had to get out and he had to get up. Coach Sanders was able to get himself up and make it around the corner. That is amazing. But Rich Long and another teacher put Dave's arms over their shoulders to help him get to the science wing. Dave told Long, Rich, they shot me in the teeth. Bless his heart. The men made it to the science room three and Sanders was coughing up blood. Marjorie Lindholm was a student in that science room. She said that when he came in, blood was just pouring and it looked like he was missing part of his jaw. Dave fell to the floor face first. Most of his teeth fell onto the floor. The people in the room got him into a chair, but Dave told Rich, I'm not doing so well. God, bless his heart. Rich knew he needed a phone, so he ran back out into the hallway. When he got back, he said that he needed to get Dave more help, and he went back out. Rich went to another science lab, but Eric and Dylan were out there, so he had to hide. Another teacher with Dave was Kent Friesen. Kent went to another lab and asked if anyone knew first aid. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 
Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Aaron Hansi was a junior and an Eagle Scout, and in the Eagle Scouts, they get first aid and CPR training, but he, there was no help he could give Dave at that point. Aaron did everything he could, though. He checked his breathing, his airway, his skin, and his wounds. He was still breathing steadily, but his shoulder was definitely broken, and he had huge wounds that were bleeding heavily. Aaron ripped off his t-shirt and used it to try to slow the blood flow. More boys in their class offered up shirts for bandages and tourniquets as well as for a pillow. Ugh, Dave said, I've got to go, I've got to go, and tried to get up to leave. The rest of the people in the room were trying to stave off more danger by flipping over tables in front of doors and pulling out and putting out literal fires in nearby rooms. At this point, the fire alarm started going off loudly and making it impossible to communicate without yelling. Can you just the absolute chaos of that? And like then on top of that, the noise of a fire alarm its a war zone. It's just absolutely. Yeah. Aaron called his dad to get him to call 911 so that he could get instructions on how to help Mr. Sanders. That's smart. Other people in the room attempted to call police and anyone else they could think of to help. Dave kept insisting he had to get out of there and get help. While Dave Sanders was fighting for his life, Eric and Dylan entered the library for the first time. There were 56 people in the library when the killers walked in. Most of them were hiding under tables including 16-year-old sophomore Craig Scott, who was Rachel Scott's brother, was hidden with Matthew Ketcher and... Wait, Kechter? And Isaiah Scholes when the killers came in. Craig said they came in and said, get anyone with white hats. Craig snatched his white hat off his head and hid it under his shirt. Eric and Dylan eventually stopped at his table when making their rounds. Both boys fired, hitting Matthew and Isaiah. They fell against each other, bleeding. Valine Schnur was hiding under a table with Lauren Townsend. Dylan stuck his shotgun under the table and fired. In the burst of shots, he hit Valine and Lauren Townsend as, as well as another girl. Val began praying out loud, Oh God, don't let me die. Dylan had walked away but spun around hearing her pleas. He asked her if she believed in God and she considered it for a second wondering how she could how she should answer but decided to affirm that she did and son says to put a pin in this dylan started to reload but got distracted and left val who went back under the table quickly under other tables were friends patrick ireland Mackay, and dan patrick had gone to the library to work on his stats homework and his friends joined him when eric and dylan found the boys they fired on them Mackay got hit in the knee when Patrick went to help him apply pressure, his head was visible over the top of the table. <sighs> Dylan shot. He had Patrick in the head. One pellet entered his left side hairline area and went six inches into Patrick's brain and stopped there. The bullet damaged his optical center and language area. He was also hit in the right foot, but he couldn't feel the right side of his body. The shot was to the left side of his brain, which controls the right side, and that pellet had severed the connection between the two sides. Now Patrick's right side was useless. It's amazing he even survived that. 
Mm-hmm. Patrick regained consciousness but struggled to speak or even understand words spoken to him. He was unable to determine if the words he thought he was saying were actually the words that came out or make sense of what others said to him. Sophomore Emily Wyant and Cassie Bernal were hiding under another table and blocked by some chairs. They were two feet apart facing each other when Eric and Dylan were walking around the library. Emily saw Eric and Dylan clearly but didn't know who they were. Cassie whispered, Dear God, dear God, why is this happening? I just want to go home. Cassie prayed as Eric and Dylan continued to roam the library. Eric stopped at their table and Emily watched as Eric hit the top of the table hard and squatted. Emily retold that Eric said peekaboo, poked his sawed-off shotgun under the table. She watched as Eric shot Cassie in the head. Brie Pasquale was nearby and heard the exchange as well. She watched from a different spot a few feet away and saw Eric take the shot one-handed. Unfortunately for Eric, he and Dylan had sawed off their shotguns beyond the legal limit and the recoil was brutal. After he shot, the gun butt cracked him in the face, breaking his nose. Hmm, that sucks for him. Yeah, sucks for you. Eric turned and yelled at Bree, I hit myself in the face. Before Eric could shoot Bree, he got distracted by something and walked away. Bree looked over at Emily and Cassie's table. Cassie was in a pool of blood and Emily was terrified and biting her hands. Bree was pretty sure the killers had left the library, so she called to Emily to come over, but Emily couldn't hear anything with ringing in her ears from the shot that killed Cassie. Bree began waving at her and Emily crawled over. They sat for so long they lost track of time. Eric and Dylan did leave the library. They had killed 10 people in there and injured 12 others. That... So, like, do you remember in American Horror Story, that first season, where... Some might call it the best season. I would agree. Um, But I don't remember his real name. Evan something, maybe? The guy who... Peters. Yes, him. So, his character in that was the school shooter. Remember? Mm -hmm. And remember the scene, they did, like, a reenactment when you finally find out that's who he is or whatever. And if you haven't seen American Horror Story, sorry. But, um... They did a really, really good job with that scene because when I was reading about this and hearing about this part, it reminded me of that. And that's how Patty Nielsen had described it too, the teacher, because she had gone to the library too. And the way she described it, I just remembered that scene exactly and just the fear that all these people must have felt because they're hiding and you're just hoping he doesn't stop where you are because it's not like you have anywhere to go. You're just there and they know you're there and you don't know who they're going to shoot and how are they making that decision? Like, it's so scary. It's so scary. Well, and yeah, I mean, for um, Emily, they talk, he talked to her. How would you know, or any of them, you know, if, if he was like, oh, do you believe in God? And then just kept going, like, what? I mean, yeah, it's just so scary. It's so scary. Craig Scott called out to the other kids in the library that the killers were gone and they headed for the side exit. His friends were dead, but another student, Casey Rugseger, asked Craig to help her. She had been shot in the shoulder, so Craig put her uninjured arm around his neck to help her out. Patrick Ireland faded in and out of consciousness and was sort of alert when Eric and Dylan left the room. His friends, Makai and Dan, tried desperately to get Patrick to get up and run out with them, but their words were nonsense in Patrick's head. They even tried to drag him, but they were both shot in the legs, and Patrick was dead weight with his right side paralyzed. Makai and Dan had to leave him. After about seven and a half minutes in the library, the boys walked out at 11.36, this is 17 minutes in, to roam the school. 
They passed the science room where Dave Sanders was bleeding to death and the Eagle Scouts were just beginning their losing battle. They were still, there were still hundreds of students in the school, but Eric and Dylan shot into empty classes. Witnesses said they even made eye contact with the boys, but no further shots were fired at people. According to the book by Dave Cullen, the boys went quiet, and this was surprisingly normal for a psychopath. So, I thought this was horrific, but interesting at the same time. He says that while a psychopath enjoys killing they get bored with it because it's only enjoyable for them for as long as that impulse lasts. So there's a lot into that's like built into that like anticipation, the buildup of it, and then the act of it. And that's why you see serial killers do things the way that they do things that a lot of them are not mass murderers and a lot of them are not like even spree killers, they, they will have a period of that cool-off time because they want that ex- excitement and anticipation to build back up because then you're, you're achieving some kind of a satisfaction with it. So once they'd shot all these people, Eric was kind of like, all right, this is boring now. That was, yeah, that was cool. Yeah. Next. It's over now, though. Like. I think if, ideally for him, if this had been a situation where somehow he would have gotten away and not gotten caught, he would have liked to kill somebody else again after that. But this particular event was old to him by now, which is horrific to think about. That's about as cold and calloused as you can get. I'm bored with this now. How many people have I murdered? Like, yeah, I'm bored with ending lives. Yeah, yeah. It's just awful. Eric was happy he'd done it, but he was over it. Dylan, like we said, was just along for the ride. He had wanted to die by that point for a very long time. So at 11.44 a.m., Eric and Dylan went back to the commons to try to get their big bombs to go off. Eric stopped on the landing and used the railings to steady his gun and hopefully hit his target. He shot at one of the bombs, but he blew it. Eric decided to go right to the bomb and Dylan messed with it to try to get it to go off. Still, no explosion. They gave up and took sips of drinks that were left on the tables and toasted to this day. I'm like, wow. Yeah, surveillance cameras recorded the whole time. Two and a half minutes after they entered the cafeteria, they left again. Dylan tried one final time to ignite the big bombs. He drew a Molotov, I'm sorry, he threw a Molotov cocktail at it, but he missed. Instead of setting off the bomb, the Molotov cocktail just started a fire that burned the duffel bag, but it didn't create the explosion the boys hoped for. The sprinkler system went off instead. The local news stations had started reporting on the attack at Columbine High School at 11.46 a.m., and by 11.55, CNN started their reporting. Soap operas were being interrupted on channels like CBS, NBC, and ABC. 911 was being completely slammed with calls from students inside the school and parents looking for their kids. It was 1999, so cell phones were a thing, but not everybody had a cell phone. It was not like they are today. This, though, was a fairly affluent area, and a lot of kids did have cell phones. They were calling anyone they could, including TV stations. Witnesses were providing their accounts, but they didn't all line up. Based on the reports coming in, there were many shooters. Some were in trench coats, some were in t-shirts, some had on ball caps, others had face masks. Even though there were variations in their clothing, all witnesses reported the shooters were all white, all male, and all high school students. 
Eric had apparently taken his trench coat off almost immediately, but Dylan kept his on most of the time. And like we said, Dylan was wearing his like standard backwards cap. Um, the witnesses saw both with trench coats. Then they saw one with a coat, one without. Um, there was an air conditioning repairman that got trapped on the roof who people thought was a shooter. There was just, I mean, it was mass chaos. It was mass confusion. And the fact that that Eric kind of changed his clothes, I mean, he took the coat off, that added to a lot of confusion. Because if you have people saying, I definitely saw two people in trench coats, and then somebody else says, well, I saw somebody shooting that didn't have a trench coat on, now we've, it sounds like three, at least. Like, right. definitely a lot of confusion. Callers said the shooters didn't care who they hit, they were just shooting. It didn't seem like a specifically targeted attack. One kid who had escaped to hide behind Gardner's police car said that Ned Harris had shot him. Since no one could locate any paper, it was written on the hood of the police cruiser. Gardner and another deputy were trying to figure out how to get the kids out of danger. They created a police car barricade by lining up the kids, I'm sorry, lining up the cars and having everyone crawl behind them. Following their current protocol, the police set up a perimeter and paramedics set up a triage area far enough from the school to be safe as long as they could get there. Derek, I keep accidentally combining them and calling them Derek. Dylan and Eric went back to the library at noon. They hoped they would at least get to see their final surprise. They had rigged up the cars to explode and take out the first responders. Hat, like... Oh, my God. That depravity to then think far enough ahead to be like, well, then first responders are going to be coming. So let's make sure that they all get taken out. They die too. Yes. Yeah. M- maximum human density is what he wants. I mean, just... Natural selection. Yes. God, oh, fuck that guy. I can't... Oh, he's so awful. <sighs> but it was another screw up. It didn't happen. It, nothing went off, thank God. They took more shots at the paramedics trying to rescue Sean Lance and Anne Marie and the deputies shot back. Deputies were covering the paramedics who were checking the bodies outside. They noticed that there were still signs of life in some of them. They had been bleeding on the sidewalk for about 40 to 50 minutes by that point. Paramedics also checked on Danny Rohrbaugh. They pronounced him dead on the scene and left him. Eric and Dylan were done. They went back to the library and sat leaning against bookshelves. One sat a, set a rag on fire that was the fuse to another Molotov cocktail and set it on the table above Patrick Ireland's seemingly lifeless body. Eric put his shotgun barrel in his mouth, and Dylan used his Tech 9 against his left temple. Eric fired first, then Dylan. The Molotov cocktail exploded, and a little fire started that set off the alarm at 12.08 p.m. Meanwhile, about the same time, so 12.06 p.m., SWAT was entering the other side of the school. That's 40 minutes later, almost, like, so long. News stations begged parents and other civilians to stay away from the school. I mean, obviously, yeah, you should, but your kid's in but there. It's your kid, yeah. yeah. Try. Like, there's no way. Kids exiting the school ran anywhere they could. Some ended up in the subdivisions behind the school and hid in houses that they were waved into. So sad. There were two official rendezvous points for families to meet up with their kids, Leewood Park Elementary and the Public Library. Most headed to Leewood. Parents were in the auditorium and kids were walking across the stage waiting to be claimed, like a weird macabre auction. Sign-in sheets were hanging up so kids could write their names and parents could check. Could you imagine 
walking in somewhere and just being like, I hope to God my kid's name is on this sheet. Because otherwise your kid's not getting picked up. Like, you don't know. And there, there were, pl- I mean, how many victims did you say? 13 that were killed. There were 13 at least parents that were going there to find out if their kid was alive or not and finding out that they weren't. Yeah. I just cannot imagine. Mm Mm-mm. The Leewood location was faxing over copies of the sign-in sheet to the public library to try to connect parents with students. Around noon, Dylan and Eric's friend Nate Dykeman called Dylan's house. He had seen the attack on TV and sure was sure that Dylan was involved. He was the one to tell Tom Klebold, which is Dylan's dad, that there was a shooting and that Dylan was probably one of the shooters. Can you imagine that call? Like, like what? What? Tom first called Sue to come home and then their older son, Byron. Then Tom Klebold called the police and told them he was pretty sure his son was one of the shooters and then he called a lawyer. SWAT was entering the school just after noon using a fire truck to get them close in case Eric and decided to shoot or Eric and Dylan decided to shoot again. One SWAT team of six was going to lay down suppressive fire so the other team could enter and then that team would go in. The team thought they were near the cafeteria but had been misinformed. Due to a remodel, the cafeteria was actually on the whole other side of the building. So the team outside using the fire truck to block them worked their way slowly around the building to the actual cafeteria. So that's, let's see, from 12.06 to 12.35, the misplaced SWAT team made it around the school and rescued Richard Castaldo. He had been shot just over an hour and 15 minutes before that. Oh, my gosh. Then the team went back for Rachel. They brought her back to the fire truck, but once they determined she was dead, they left her behind. The team also checked Danny Rohrbaugh because they weren't aware he'd already been checked. They also said he was dead and they left him. Danny's body would lay out there for 28 hours. And just, again, mass confusion, chaos. Oh my gosh. By now, helicopters were over Columbine from police and news stations. The sheriff demanded that the news not play live coverage. There were TVs all over the school and the kids, the killers would, could be watching. The helicopters had also seen the paramedics check Danny Rohrbaugh and leave him. Fortunately, they had the decency not to share that. One chopper saw a whiteboard that had been pushed up to the window of a classroom. That was science room three. And in huge block letters were the words one bleeding to death. Teacher Doug Johnson had written that mess- message around noon. Dave Sanders was bleeding to death. When students and Eagle Scouts, Aaron and Kevin, would switch out applying pressure to Coach Sanders' wounds, he would immediately feel colder to the touch. His skin was losing color, and the boys were desperately trying to keep him awake and keep his airway clear. That's, I mean, these are kids. I mean, they're scouts. They've had, like, minimal first aid training. That's amazing. They kept him alive as long as they did. Mm -hmm. The boys tried to keep him warm with wool emergency blankets from a closet of first aid materials. Everyone tried to keep Dave awake by asking him questions and showing him the pictures of his family he had in his wallet. But Dave knew the truth. He knew he wasn't going to make it. He asked the boys to tell his girls that he loved them. SWAT finally entered the cafeteria at 1.15 p.m. The cafeteria was covered in uneaten food, abandoned backpacks, and three to four inches of water from the sprinkler system. The fire Dylan started with the Molotov cocktail melted some chairs and burned some ceiling tiles. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Students were still crouched under the lunch tables and more were in a storage closet. There were even people in the ceiling tiles. In fact, one teacher had gotten up there planning to crawl to safety in the ductwork, but had fallen through the unstable tiles and gotten hurt. Yeah, because you know those those school tiles, they're just, they're thin, like. It's almost like sheetrock or. Yeah, yeah. It's not sturdy. No. It could not. Yeah. Yeah, it wouldn't support your weight. Like, I remember when there were, you know, you always had, like, a leak or something, and the janitor would have to come in and, like, fix one of the tiles or several of them, and it would, it was like broken sheetrock when they would take them out and move yeah. around. Yeah, they're definitely not. Like, particle board, but sheetrock or something. Yeah. yeah. There were even two men who had hidden in the freezer. Cops had another plea for the media. They told them to stop answering calls from the students inside live on air. That's upsetting. The most, the more we cover cases that have anything to do with media, which is almost all of them, the more I hate the media. (laughs) Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because what are you, the only reason that you have for answering that stuff on the air is for like ratings and viewers. You're, you're not interested in any way, shape or form in doing anything helpful. I don't feel like. Maybe you could spin it that way, but that's disgusting to me. They implored the media to tell the students to turn off the TV and stop calling the media. The anchors sort of complied. According to the book, one reporter said, if you're watching kids, turn the TV off or turn it down at least. Cool. At the same time SWAT was entering the cafeteria, lead investigator Kate Batten had detectives at the Harris house. She heard Dylan, she had heard Dylan and Eric's names enough by now to determine that they were involved. The Harrises were not willing to cooperate and even tried to keep the detectives from coming into their house. Detectives went into Eric's room and found the barrel to the sawed-off shotgun on a bookshelf, ammunition on the bed, the fingertips they cut off, the gloves on the floor, fireworks, and bomb ingredients everywhere. Desk, drawers, windowsills, wall, everywhere. They also found at least one page to the anarchist cookbook that Eric had used to create the bomb. I have heard the name of that book in so many cases. Like, apparently you can fucking buy it on Amazon. And it's just how... What is it called again? The Anarchist Cookbook. You can... It's like different ways to make different bombs and stuff. And you... That's legal? Yeah, you could just buy it. Oh my gosh. I would look it up to just to see, but I would be afraid that the government would red flag me. I know. Like, I can't think of a reason why you would buy that not for nefarious purposes. Like, I don't understand in what way you would need that and not be a danger to yourself or others. 
Right. I mean, because even for our purposes researching, I we don't need to know that information. No. Like, it's not pertinent. No. And maybe you can't buy it on Amazon, but you can buy it on the internet. I know that because everybody who has it, pretty much, I don't know where they got it, but I've heard of other right. cases where when they go in and search somebody's house, they found this book. I'm like, what the hell? Packaging for a gas can was also found. A specialist in evidence collection spent hours collecting evidence, and they didn't leave the Harris house until after 1 a.m. Unlike the Harrises, the Klebolds were a more cooperative, and they swore that Dylan was a happy boy who didn't even like guns. Tom was like, <sighs> like he told the team, you're not going to find guns, you're not going to find bombs in this house. They, as a family, were very against violence. They didn't have any guns. They didn't go hunting you know they didn't have anything in their house and to their knowledge dylan had not ever shown interest in guns either so they were completely unaware of all of that but at this point that friend had already called tom Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so now the detectives are there but they they were sure that they wouldn't find anything in the house he doesn't have anything here but they did find pipe bombs that dylan had left behind Supervisory Special Agent for the FBI, Dwayne Fuselay, was the first FBI agent on the scene at Columbine, but not because he was assigned to the case. His son, Brian, was a student at Columbine and was in the building that day. That's scary. Police thought this was a hostage situation at first, and Fuselay happened to be extremely qualified in this area. In fact, he was one of the people to talk David Koresh, to talk to David Koresh during the negotiations for Waco. He knew that hostages are a way to fill a need and get demands met. Suspects who take hostages think rationally. When it's not a hostage situation, there are no demands and the people in the way of the shooters mean nothing to them. Fusillet didn't think this was a hostage situation, not to mention that the media was already talking about Eric and Dylan as one person implying that there was one motive and one way to solve this. But in fact, there were two boys with two completely different reasons for being there. Fuselet knew that mass murders don't typically have partners, but when they do, the two are always completely different from each other. Within, and, and that is still, I feel like that still is a misconception today. Like, people still, I think if you were like, by and large, to ask somebody what caused the Columbine shooting, people would say it was two boys who were bullied and they went after the kids that they thought were bullying them. They wanted to get back at them, both of them, as as essentially as one person. Within two hours, the media had latched onto the trench coat mafia theory that became synonymous with Columbine. It was a gang of goths, gays and weirdos, that's how they described it in the media, and the boys were loners. And th- that was before, this is before they've even found the boys' bodies. Like, they've already decided this is trench coat mafia. And I remember growing up, I remember it being Violent Video Games and Marilyn Manson. That's what I always heard. Yes. Violent Video Games for sure. Yeah. And I knew that there was a connection with Marilyn Manson with it. Yeah. Well, yeah. Remember, this was when we went to Eagleville and the guy that we, I had computer class with, he dressed like Marilyn Manson every day, full makeup and everything. He looked exactly like he him. He looked yeah. exactly like him. Super nice guy. But it was right around this time, and I didn't listen to Marilyn Manson yet then. I was still, you know, I was coming off of my very poppy phase, you know? 
Like baby Mac days? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I'd grown out of NSYNC. I was growing up, you know? <laughs> but <laughs> Maturing on to baby exactly. Mac. Exactly. Yeah. But I had not, I hadn't listened to Marilyn Manson or knew much about, like, his music. And the only access I had to it would have been, like, TRL, you know? Like, we didn't really have, yeah. like, you, d- you didn't have the internet like you do today where you could go look up videos or whatever you wanted to or, like, look up interviews. I knew nothing about Marilyn Manson. So that Yeah, so it would have been, like, Marilyn Manson, Corn, like, that kind of stuff. Yeah, so the was information, yeah. yeah, that I had about Marilyn Manson was I, I associated Marilyn Manson with the Columbine shooting. And so I was really kind of scared of that guy at first until I got to know him because... I just didn't know. Like, that's the only the only thing I had heard about Marilyn Manson was in the media and it was linked to Columbine. And people were like, people who listen to Marilyn Manson and play video games are going to go shoot people. Like, you know, you can't say shit like that. <laughs> you can't say shit like that. Because well, no. people, there are people who, you know, we didn't have cable TV. Like, we, I think we had just gotten it by that point. Like, we just didn't have a lot of access to information. Like, now we have more access, but still, it's just, you can't fucking say shit like that. And you don't know. Well, I mean, that's, it's fear-mongering. That's what they're doing. I mean, it's just, it's planting the seed of doubt, and it's making everybody who's already scared attack this one person because of a generalization that you made that isn't even true. Exactly, yeah, because the, what Dave Cullen said about journalism and, you know, people in the media is... So many of the theories that came out about this case came out while while all this is still going on. Like at this point in the timeline where police haven't even found their bodies, they don't even know for sure who all is involved. They haven't found their diaries. They haven't found anything yet. Like they don't they don't have any of that information. The media is always already putting out trench coat mafia, Marilyn Manson video games. They're already putting that shit out there and they don't know. And so Dave Cullen is like, look. The facts of the cases, how many victims? You know, so people, the media will report things and then they'll go back and fix that. We thought it was this many, but turned out it was, you know, this many or, or thought it was this type of weapon. Turns out it was this type of weapon, like whatever. With the theories, once it's out there, it's out there. And the thing about it is, is they want to be the first to report it. So when you hear something like that, especially when it's very early on, and he, he was like, you can look at, at any other crime almost. They want to report the why immediately. They're already trying to say, well, this is this is why. Once it's out there, it's out there. And 99% of the time, they're making that shit up because they don't know. And it's just, we want to be the first to do it. Doesn't matter what happens. Well, yeah. And I mean, that it happens all the time. Like, once it's out there, you can print a retraction. You can you can go back and oop edit. This is actually what really happened. Who gives a shit though at that point? Nobody listens to that. No. Their mind's already made yeah. up. Yeah, because they've heard it one place and they've taken it as fact. Like and that's I mean, you know, and that was then. Now we have access to all this information, but so many people live in a way that when we hear something, I mean, look at the world right now, what we're going through. There's a lot of misinformation out there, but it's like you hear it one time and then instead of taking that extra step to find maybe a couple different articles so that you can verify something that you saw on Facebook, you just say, well, this person said this on Facebook, therefore it must be true. 
and then you go and tell everybody you know that thing. You know, it's like it's the game of telephone with with incorrect information to begin with. And honestly, I mean, who do we believe? Because if the media's goal is not to give us facts, it's to get viewers or listeners or whatever it is, we're in a dangerous position getting our information from the media. But anyway, that's yeah, a whole separate thing. I mean, we've talked about, yeah, we've talked about that before, um, specifically on our Patreon, the Who Killed Little Gregory case. Like, yes. I always thought that the media was, it was just facts. It wasn't biased. It's just facts. Yeah. Yeah. Especially like, you know, early or like when you're younger and earlier on and like, and now as you get further into things, it's almost like, I mean, it's almost like when you're looking at an investigation of a case where a witness comes in and says, okay. I was here at this time. I saw such and such happen. I then called this person, like whatever. The detective is going to take that statement and then they're going to go and they're going to verify all those things if they're going to try and investigate. They want to corroborate every piece of that story because they want to be sure that the information they're getting is actually correct. We have to do that now. Like, you can't just watch something on one news outlet because each news outlet is controlled by somebody who's trying to put out create a narrative. So there's there's those different perspectives. So somewhere in the middle of all these things is maybe the truth because it's it's just like if you and your husband have an argument. There's your story, there's his story, and then the truth is in the middle. Like because everybody's perceptions are different. Everybody's perspectives are different. You've mm-hmm. got to have that kind of middle ground and unfortunately with a lot of people in the media they don't give a fuck if it's correct information. No, they just want to be the first and they want to sell a bunch of or get a bunch of. Yeah. And what's what's the danger here? OK, so what if what if all the parents in the early 2000s are like, well, OK, fine. My kids are not going to play violent video games. They're not going to play shooter video games and they're not going to listen to Marilyn Manson. OK, well, are they going to turn out to be worse kids because of that? Probably not. You know, that stuff doesn't add anything necessarily. But it's wrong. I like Marilyn Manson, so I feel attacked. Well, I'll just say that right okay. now. All right, fine. If you if that's your journey, then like whatever. But you know, it's not like it's not like taking you know necessarily like TV away or whatever. Like, is that going to harm them? Probably not. But is it the right thing to look at? No, and that's dangerous because if you don't, then still forge a stronger relationship with your children. Find out what are they doing when they're alone in their room all the time. What are they watching? What are they listening to? What are they writing in their journal? Like, what kind of shit are they hiding up there? If you don't know the stuff that now we know about Dylan and Eric, and really more Eric because he was the leader of this whole situation, you could, ta- you could have taken away his Marilyn Manson and his video game shooter things all day long. He's still going to do this. So that's the wrong question. It's the wrong thing. Like, it's actually dangerous to spread that information so early on because then what it does, it's just like when we talked about the, the hot car situation with Cooper Harris, the, the little boy who died yes. in the hot car. Yes. And the woman who leads the organization for like car safety and stuff like that with kids. She says, the moment you tie this, like the moment you say he murdered his son on purpose 
Every other parent says, I don't have to worry about this. It could not happen to me because I'm, I wouldn't do it on purpose. Where instead of, so then when you say, well, they were listening to Marilyn Manson and playing violent video games, or they were in the trench coat mafia, then every other parent steps back and says, my kids don't do that. I have nothing to worry about. Forget about psychopathic behaviors. Forget about major depression that's being untreated, and we don't even know the signs to look for. Forget all those things. I don't have to worry about Marilyn Manson and video games, so I'm good. And I take a step back and I say, mm-hmm. I don't have to worry. That's the danger. Exactly. Or, I mean, contrary-wise, not discrediting what you're saying, but the kid that we went to school with that dressed like Marilyn Manson, if we go with that theory, then who gets bullied? Possibly that kid. And then who, not saying that he had potential to, he was the nicest, sweetest guy, but it creates this ripple effect where it's like, okay, well, then maybe his depression, you know, like, it's just, it's causing so many problems in so many ways, and it's yeah, just not, you, it's not healthy, it's toxic. Yeah, you perpetuate the the situation that potentially started this whole thing, or contributed to it, in another way. Like, you're just, you're you're pushing out more fear, you're pushing out more anger, and you're yeah. putting a Band-Aid over I mean, but that's what people want to do, right? Like when there's an unsolved murder, Gregory, the Gregory situation, that people just wanted somebody to get arrested for it. And it by a certain point, pretty early on, it didn't matter who it was anymore. It was, we just want this to be, we just don't want to worry about it anymore. We don't want to think about it anymore. We don't want this to scare us anymore. So tell me what the reason was. Tell me it's an easy fix and tell me it's something that my kid is not into. This is just these kids. Mm-hmm. So dangerous. Okay. When no one showed up to help by 2 o'clock p.m., the people in science room 3 decided they were going to have to take action. They told the 911 operator they were going to throw a chair through the window. They were going to get Dave Sanders out on their own. She instructed them not to do that for fear that the killers would hear them. She didn't know that the killers were no longer a threat at that time, and also the fire alarm was going fucking crazy, so what's the likelihood they were going to hear anything anyway? Around 2.30 p.m., a police officer in a helicopter saw something in the window of the library. It was a person covered in blood and was painstakingly picking pieces of glass out of the frame. He was going to jump out. The officer immediately radioed the SWAT team. They got a Loomis armored truck and drove it up to the building. It was Patrick Ireland. He was dizzy and confused, but he was sure that he had to get out of there. His vision was blurry with one big spot being completely empty. There was blood pouring down his face from the gunshot wound to his head. Patrick could hear yelling, but he didn't know where it was coming from. The voices were just noise, and he couldn't understand what they were saying. When Patrick had regained consciousness again after the killers left the library, he decided he needed to get out, but he couldn't make his right side work with him. He couldn't walk, he couldn't crawl, so he decided to use the left hand to try and pull himself across the library. Every time he moved, even barely moved, he passed out. It took him three hours to get to the window from his hiding space less than two tables away. Three hours. Oh, my gosh. His path was not straight. The blood trail that he left showed that he had to zigzag. He kept running into things. He kept running into bodies. He just knew he had to head for the light. I mean, it's so sad. The light was the windows, and the windows meant somebody might see him. He, the presence of mind he still had, though. like amazing. Once he made it up there, he had to somehow shimmy himself up from the floor. He managed to get himself standing, which is more like 
leaning against the metal girder between the window panels where he had to take a break for a minute. The window ledge was about to his waist. There was no way he was going to be able to jump. So his plan was to kind of flip himself over, just like kind of lean over and let it, let himself just kind of fall out. But there were shards of glass in the windowsill. So he had to clean those out, which again is amazing that he could see them and think to remove them because of the condition he's in. So the armored truck was pulling up under the window, but Patrick was going. He thought they told him it was okay to jump, but they were still trying to get it in place. I mean, he can't hear. He has no idea what's going on. Patrick leaned forward and was caught at his waist. He couldn't use his feet because they weren't touching the floor anymore. Two SWAT officers made it to the top of the armored truck just in time to catch Patrick, who kicked up his left leg and went over the ledge. Once Patrick landed on top of the truck, the officers tried to get him down from the truck, but Patrick was still in go mode. He was desperate to get out. And I think this is like that adrenaline thing that like once your body says, okay, this is flight mode, he's got to get out. So his body is doing like he couldn't stop himself. He even climbed in the truck like he was going to just ride in it like he was a passenger. He did not realize he was the injured party. The paramedics asked Patrick the basic mental acuity questions. Do you know where you are? When's your birthday? What's your name? He knew these answers, but saying them was not so easy. He couldn't get his name out accurately. Patrick wasn't happening, but Rick came across enough for them to get it. Patrick Ireland. He was struggling with other memories too, just the new ones. He gave them all the digits in his phone number, but he thought he'd been shot in the ER. Just before Patrick's escape and rescue, President Bill Clinton came on TV to address the nation about the tragedy at Columbine. Also, I feel like I remember seeing on the news Patrick jumping out of that window. Wasn't that on the news? Because they had the helicopters going around. Maybe it wasn't, but I, f- yeah. I feel like I feel like there was because I one of the memories that I have. Well, first of all, I remember watching this at Nana and Granddaddy's house. For whatever reason, we went there after school and it was on the news or maybe it was like we saw it the next day on the news or something. But I know we were at Nana and Granddaddy's house and I remember seeing the footage of the school and I remember seeing I thought multiple people jumped out of windows, but I remember seeing somebody. Maybe I'm making it up. I don't know. When CNN. Oh, it did. When CNN cut from the president to the footage of Patrick's escape, his sister in the eighth grade was watching. She didn't recognize him, though, because of all of the blood. But his parents did not see that. So it was on the news. Okay, because I was like, I swear I saw it. They found out where Patrick was when his mom, Kathy, asked a neighbor to check their answering machine. And there was a message from St. Anthony's Hospital. That's like a shit time to not have a cell phone. Like, that sucks. Like, okay, we left a message on your parents' answering machine. Like, hope they get it. That's right. I almost can't imagine, like, going back to life like that. Like, calling people and being like, okay, well, when she gets home, tell her I called. And it's like, I don't know when that's going to be. (laughs) Exactly. Back at Columbine at 2.47 p.m., kids had been trapped in the choir room and science area. Around 120 kids came out, led by SWAT, running past the bodies of Rachel and Danny. SWAT finally reached science room three. The students and staff were told to put their hand on their heads and follow them out, but they were worried that someone needed to stay with Coach Sanders. Aaron volunteered, but the SWAT team wasn't going to allow that. So they were like, okay, well, then let's carry him out with us. 
he has to leave. And they were like, no. The team was trained in making quick decisions that might seem cruel, but are in place to ensure the most survivors. So again, at this point, they're still not sure that Eric and Dylan are done shooting. So they see these people and say, whoever can come with us has to come with us. And nobody can lag behind. And so they had to leave Coach Sanders there. Just horrible. So sad. Two SWAT officers ended up staying with Dave and a paramedic was brought in to him. By the time the paramedic was brought in, Dave wasn't breathing anymore. It became clear that they weren't going to be able to save Dave Sanders. The SWAT team took the paramedic to the library that had just been cleared by SWAT. At 3.15 p.m., SWAT finally reached the library and found the massacre as well as the bodies of Eric and Dylan. Of the 13 bodies in the library, 12 were cold. Lisa Krutz had her eyes open and tears running down her cheek. She'd been shot in the left shoulder. Both of her arms and one of her hands were injured, and she had lost a lot of blood. She was carried out by the SWAT team, and she survived. The SWAT team also found Patty Nielsen crouching in a cupboard. She had been in there crouching for three hours. God, her legs fell asleep. Like, And she had been shot, yeah. too. On April 20th, students had been bused to Leewood Elementary, like we had mentioned, to reunite them with their parents. As the hours ticked by, certain parents began losing hope that their child was coming home alive. Around 4 p.m., the buses stopped coming. District Attorney Dave Thomas had the names of the bodies still laying in the school and on the grounds. He was charged with being the one to tell the parents, but he stalled. Why? Maybe because he was scared? I don't know. You... Like, I'm sorry that that's your job, but it's your job. These people are waiting to find out if their children are alive. They moved the parents from one room to another, and the coroner asked them to fill out forms about what their kids were wearing and other descriptors. It was after 8 p.m. before D.A. Thomas, the coroner, and Sheriff John Stone told the parents the truth about their children. Another deputy went to Dave Sanders' house to tell his wife and kids. There was one parent who said that he was not, he, he kept, was being told, there's another bus coming, there's another bus coming. And he was waiting and he was waiting and he was like, okay, another bus is supposed to be here, another bus is supposed to be here. And he doesn't see his kid getting off the bus anywhere. And then finally he's like, there can't be another bus coming. And so they finally went home and then they saw the footage of Columbine on the news and his son is laying there dead on the sidewalk. And that's how he found out his son had been murdered. Oh my God. But no, the police didn't tell him, the coroner didn't, nobody. He just saw it on the news. Oh, horrific. That's so terrible. But that's it for this episode. I think we did not deliver on our goal of making it not so heavy. I, I don't know a way to not. It's... Well, on one hand, I mean, we we really enjoy, I don't know, we, we try to take a light approach to this subject because it's so heavy and we just want, you know, if we can, what, while being respectful. But this case just does not seem, mm. there's no way. No, it's really, it's, there's not, there's no way. So, yeah. Um... The next episode will be um, kind of like the, we talked a little bit about the theories, um, but then we'll get into the why, the actual probably why based on facts and their own words and things like that. 
um, and just kind of the history leading up to the shooting. I will say this, though, if it can, you know, be a little lighter touch at all. For the people who were up in the rafters or whatever, one good way for the SWAT team to have gotten them out is to spray a little gap dream up there. That'll smoke them out. That'll smoke anybody out. Yeah. Wasn't that an episode of Teachers where they got the little boy out? She was like, oh, yeah, somebody gave me a bottle of Gap Dream for Christmas. And she sprayed it up there and he, like, had to get out of there. Although I I I still love Gap Gap Dream. Dream. Yeah, I was like, I didn't think it it was that bad. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, it'll get rid of your, well, anybody. Anybody you don't want around, it'll get rid of them. Yeah. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening, and we will meet you back here next week. Bye! The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. Our logo was created by Sloane Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Visit us at KillerQueensPodcast.com for merch and other info about the show. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.